We are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, the first warning passage. So when we, if you weren't with us a few weeks ago when we introduced the book of Hebrews, I told you what made Hebrews interesting are these five warning passages that are kind of spaced in and throughout the book of Hebrews. And the questions that you've got to answer when you hit these warning passages are who is he talking to, what's the warning, and then how does that apply to us today? So we come to the first one, and that's where we're going to kind of jump in. So let's read the first five verses. I'll read out loud, and if you'll follow along, that would be great. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So the first question you'll have to ask when you get into these questions is, who is the author talking to here? Is he talking to believers? Is this warning to us who have come to faith in Christ? Or is he speaking to unbelievers? And that's one of the huge pieces that kind of, I would say, clouds uh, the understanding of Hebrews. Uh, there's lots of good people who see it one way. There's lots of good people who see another. In fact, let me just be really clear here. Uh, with those who maybe I would see it differently, they're not heretics, right? It's, it's not, we're not in that stage. It's, a, it's just a matter of interpretation. My hope is, my prayer is, by the time we're done today, you're going to say, hey, Stephen, I agree. <laughs> and we're right, all right? So who is he talking about here? And so, and maybe even a point of clarification, most of the people who would even say that this is unbelievers, they're not just talking about the unbeliever out in the world. They're talking about specifically unbelievers within the church, people who have come, often they speak of them of people who have maybe professed salvation, but really have not come to putting their faith in Christ, right? Which then raises another issue of what really makes somebody a believer and not a believer, and someday we might have time to go into that. We didn't have time today, but if I could just sum it up, I believe what the Bible teaches us of what makes a person a believer in Jesus when we have come to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal life. I, I think that's the simplest way I can put it. And so the question is, in this passage, when he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, is he talking to believers or unbelievers? And what I would tell you and what I would suggest to you is that the context is, is that he is here talking to believers. You say, well, Steve, where do you get that? Well, you noticed in the first three verses, he uses the word we. I don't think the author was French. That's never come up. He uses the term we four times. He uses the term us once. Now, 
I was reading a commentator or somebody who believes this is a professed believer. And, and so how did they handle that? Well, that you know, he, in being very graceful, is trying to identify with those. Which to me, as a communicator, you're jumping through a really big hoop to get there. Because as a communicator, yes, I want to use second person pronouns as much as I can. I want to identify with my, my audience. But there are certain things that as I preach every week that I have to think about, I can't identify with. For instance, when I begin to talk about salvation and the need to believe in Jesus Christ, and I can't say, well, if we haven't believed... We need to, right? Because I have. In fact, I think if you even look at what the author says down in verses 14 and 15, you see that. He's talking about kind of some of the elementary things of faith, and he changes back to the third person here. He says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is the devil, and might free those, not free us, because he's already free, right? Free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Well, the author's not saying we're, we're subject to the slavery of the fear of death. Why? Because he had already been liberated. It's just like when we talk about sin and we talk about, you know, in our country there are a lot of people, third person, right, people, them, who commit adultery. You have never in 26 and a half years ever heard me say, hey, you know, there's some of us who commit adultery, right? Because I don't. You understand what I'm saying? So he, he, he uses the second person pronoun here. Uh, the, the, another thing that we see specifically within the context is even in the context of the book. So, so you actually, if you just even look down chapter 3, verse 1, he comes back to this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the, our high priest. He's talking here to believers. It's not only the context of the chapter, it is also the context of the, of the book. The other piece that I would argue is that what we have to understand is that the whole of the New Testament was written to believers. The one exception is the book of John, where John specifically tells us, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. John was written for the person who didn't know. And then, of course, you get to chapter 13, and it actually kind of shifts now towards believers. Some might argue the book of Matthew was maybe written more for unbelievers, for the Jews specifically, to see Jesus as Messiah. But other than that, everything is written to believers. So I think the context suggests that he's talking to believers. Secondly, or, or one other point here, is if you take this idea that he's talking to unbelievers then what great news is he sharing? So basically, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the argument basically is telling you if you don't believe in Jesus, you're in trouble. Which we all kind of know that, right? That's kind of common knowledge. I don't think that's who he's talking to. I think he's talking to believers. Then the second question you're going to answer is, what is he warning about? Clearly, the author is warning about something here. Something's going on. In fact, in verse 2, 
And if for the word spoken to angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape? When you think about transgressions, Probably the idea here is think of sins of omission, the things that we're told to do that we don't do, disobedience, the things that we are told not to do that we go and we do. And his point is, is that if angels brought us the law, and if angels were the one who communicated God's revelation, and those that didn't listen to them were subject to penalty... How much more, think back to to chapter 1, Jesus, who is so far superior to the angels, so far superior to the revelation of God in the Old Testament, if we don't heed him, there's a warning going on here. How will we escape? And the warning has something to do with salvation. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So, So what is he trying to say? Well, the word that the Greek word that's translated salvation is the word soteria. And in the Greek, it has a very general meaning. When we think of it, we talked about this last week, we think justification. And it certainly does refer to that at points. But the word itself is a very general term. It has the idea of deliverance, rescue, preservation, salvation. And when you look at how it's used in Scripture, depending on the context, there's really five different things it can mean. One is it can refer to just a temporary deliverance, that God brought salvation to his people. Um, And we'll look at some Scripture here in a moment. Number two, it can deal with justification, that we have been saved, we have been forgiven, we have been redeemed. It can also deal with our sanctification. So justification typically always talks in past tense. We have been saved. Sanctification, we are in the process of being saved. We are in the process of being delivered as we become more like Christ. Another meaning of salvation is that looking ahead to our future salvation when Jesus comes and takes us out of here, right? And and that's when we will know ultimate salvation, glorification, the Bible calls it. And there are sometimes, honestly, I think the context is either isn't clear or it, it really is encapsulating all three of those, kind of the whole of our salvation. So let me give you some scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 puts it like this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not, not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the soteria, of his household. Now that's not justification, that's not sanctification, that's not glorification. That is kind of that temporary save from the flood, right? They're going to get into ark and and they are going to know salvation through the ark. They're not going to be drowned in the water. It's a temporary thing. It's kind of that earthly thing. In Acts chapter 4, couldn't think of a better passage than than Peter talking to the Pharisees about Jesus who they had crucified, but that he had died for our sins. And he goes in this, and there is soteria, salvation, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men, whereby you must be Soteria, you're back to that word, right? You must be saved. This is justification. This is the process. When I put my faith in Jesus, I am washed clean. I am forgiven. I am made a child of God. Justification. Philippians 2, though, 
uses it in the idea of sanctification. So then, my beloved, just if you always obeyed, not my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your soteria with fear and trembling. Is he saying work for your justification? No. He's saying what you're working for is your sanctification. You're working out what God has been doing in your life. This ties into Romans chapter 8 where God is at work to make us into the image of Christ. We are all in this process. This process of salvation. Sanctification. Lastly, Hebrews chapter 9 He says this, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, might be justification there, right? Will appear a second time for soteria, salvation, ultimate deliverance, glorification, right? Without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. So you can see this word, Same word is used, but depending on the context is what he's referencing here. So when you come back to chapter 2, the question is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What is he referencing? And what I want to argue with you this morning, discuss with you, is that I think the context would point that the, how he's using salvation here is pointing to that ultimate salvation, glorification. Let me give you four reasons. How does the passage start, verse 1? For this reason. For this reason. Some of you have got a translation that says, therefore. Right? For those of us who grew up in the King James, you remember the therefores and the wherefores? And what was the first Bible you know, tool you learned? Whenever you see a therefore or a wherefore, you got to see what it's there for. Thank you. That will not work in any other service. I love you people. You're my people, right? What's it there for? Well, it's pointing back. It's pointing back to chapter 1. It's pointing back to Jesus the superior to the angels. I would argue with you that it's pointing back to what did he just say in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. But to which of you or to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What is he talking about? He's talking about something future, right? Jesus is right now today seated at the right hand of God waiting for all his enemies to be made his footstool. It's looking ahead. We talked last week about how when you get to verse 14, angels are ministering not to those who are unsaved and will become justified, but they are ministering to those who are justified, who are waiting to that day of glorification, right? Who will inherit that future salvation. That's the context for this reason. I think you can even go back further. You go back to chapter t- or verse 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 1. The fact that he is the forever God. That he is the one that rules and reigns. Oh, by the way, this world will fade away. He'll fold it up like a garment, but he remains. It's looking ahead. It's looking ahead. It's looking ahead. That's number one. Number two, don't skip over this phrase. This to me is fascinating. Verse three, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first 
spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. After it was spoken at first by the Lord, it was fascinating to me. Most of the commentators actually kind of skipped over this, but I think this is such a huge key. Was Jesus the first one? And when you begin to think, and, and you think about this idea of justification, this idea of, of, of him coming and dying on the cross to pay for our sins, was Jesus the first one who told us about what he was going to do? And I would argue with you, the answer to that question is no. We go back to the Old Testament, right? We look at Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgression. He's crushed for our iniquity. The, the punishment for our peace is upon him. With his stripes we're healed. All weak like a sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid upon him the sin of us all. In fact, today, when we're trying to explain what Jesus did on the cross, we actually use those verses more than we, we even use what Jesus told us about it. Right? You get to Isaiah 53, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, speaking of the Father, will see it and be satisfied. Right? Justification. Redemption. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The Old Testament prophets talked about this. Jeremiah chapter 31. On that day, I will, I will give them a new covenant. I will write their, my law on their heart and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. You had the picture of, of Abraham with Isaac, right? He's about ready to sacrifice his son. And God says, no, stop. Right? And Abraham had already said, God will provide the sacrifice. And now they look, and there's a ram in this beautiful picture of how the ram now takes the place of his son. And how Jesus came and took our place. You think of the sacrificial system where they had to bring the, the bull and the goat every year on that day of atonement, right? Place their hands for placing the sin. And then those, those animals were, were killed in, our, in the place. So the sins were covered. I don't think it was new with Jesus. In fact, it's so interesting to even think through the details. Jesus primarily would say, hey, I, I came to give my life as a ransom, right? But that was in keeping with what we were told the Messiah would do. What did Jesus tell us that was new? That you really don't see clearly in the Old Testament. How about John 14? In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. In the Old Testament, what little we knew about what was future was going to be a Messiah ruling and reigning. But not the Son of God and not us with him and not us with him in heaven. That was new. That Jesus himself, God's only son, would be the one who would sit. You think of Luke chapter 22. You are those who have stood by me in my trials just as my father has granted me a kingdom. I will grant that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. And you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
That, I believe, is the new peace. That, that Jesus would come and that we would actually rule and reign with him. Not just the people alive in that day. And not just with some Messiah, some, some descendant of, of David. But that it was God himself and we would be with him. And oh, by the way, there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And that we would be the ones who for all of eternity would rule and reign with him. This salvation that was first spoken of by our Lord. That's number two. The, the third thing here that I think the text would point us to is what he says here in, in chapter or verse four. God also testifying with them both by signs. Oh, I got to really hurry here. Okay. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, according to his own will. The third thing is, is he talks about the testimony that came with signs and wonders. Well, the signs and wonders, you, of course, you think uh, Acts chapter 2, right? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And he quotes from Joel. And Joel, again, was what? Looking ahead. He's looking to a day, in fact, that still hasn't come. The day when Messiah sets up his kingdom. And that, and that was there. And that's how these things were looked at. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 6. The, the author of Hebrews even says, And has tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. The signs, the gifts, the miracles were all kind of this looking ahead of this age age that is to come. Paul even says this in Ephesians about us getting the Holy Spirit. He says, you were sealed with him, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. It's looking ahead to another day, that day of our ultimate salvation. And if I haven't convinced you yet, number four, look at verse five, right? Because verse five we'll actually deal with again next week. But this is what he says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are now, what's the word there? Speaking. So, the warning is this. The warning is to you and I. Don't lose sight of our ultimate salvation. You've come to faith in Christ. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior. But part of your salvation is yet to be realized. It is that time when we will go and we will be with him. That our world is a two-world view. Right? The, the heart, we talk about this all the time, the heart of the Christian worldview. If you and I are going to see this world right, the way that we ought to see it, this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are called to live for that day. And what he's trying to say here, I believe, is this. If we lose sight of that, and we lose sight of our ultimate salvation and begin to live for today... That brings penalty. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth. Lay up for yourself treasure on heaven. Live for that day. You think of what John tells us, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, these are not of the Lord, of the Father, but of this world. He uses an interesting word here at the end of verse 2. And every transgression and every disobedience received a just penalty. The word penalty there is not a negative term. It basically means we'll receive a just wage. 
That's what the word means. In fact, two more times that Greek word is used in Hebrews, and yet both times when it's used later on, it's actually translated reward. So how can the same word be translated penalty and reward? The idea is it's just what you earn. And his point is this. You and I have the chance to live for that day. And, and his warning here is this, is that we should pay way closer attention, right? Go back to verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. That pay attention is an interesting, again, it's, an, it's almost a nautical term. It, could be, it was used sometimes with sailing where the idea is keep your, boat, your boat pointed to the port, and in a moment, he's going to say, so that you don't drift away. Again, that kind of that nautical idea. The idea is, is be intentional. Pay close. And, 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 and again, the, the Greek is there, and you can see it in the English. It's much closer. It's not just pay attention, but much, exceedingly great. Give this. Be intentional about it. We must pay much closer attention. Why? So that we don't drift we live in this world that is not our home, that has all kinds of demands on our time. It's all that we know. We live in faith for that world. But keep your eyes on that world so that you don't drift. And there's one thing that the church in America struggles with today. It's drift. In the beauty of our freedoms... And all that we have, and options that we have, and lifestyle that we can live, and we don't face the persecution of some of our brothers and sisters around the world, it's so easy to drift. Do you know that today, statistically, they tell us in America, in the church, that most churches in America right now are running someplace between 40 and 60% of the people they did pre-COVID. Now, we're blessed. Uh, We're probably more in that 80, 85%. But even then, what happened to the 15, to the 20%? What happened to so many in that 40, 50%? Drift, got out of the habit. Priorities changed. Drift. And his whole point is this. Listen, that is our hope. In fact, I love what he says later on in chapter 6 because he comes back to this nautical term. So he says, for this reason, pay attention, right? Focus your boat on the port so you don't drift. And back in, later on in chapter 6, he comes back to this idea. He says, this hope we have as an anchor, an anchor to our soul, right? What's our hope? Our hope is that day. In fact, he talks about how Jesus has already gone ahead. But one day, we're going to be joining him too. This is the anchor of our soul. We live for that day. We live for that day when we will stand before Jesus. And his point is, that brings great benefit. It brings benefit here, right? Because the wage that we receive is not a penalty. We talked about this in August, you know better life. It's the best way to live, follow Jesus. 
to live for that day. But it also brings great reward there. Couldn't help but think of uh, what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed for the deeds in this body, whether they're good or bad, right? Not whether we get into heaven or not, whether we're a child of God or not. No, that's already settled, but reward, penalty. Can I remind you what Jesus' last words to us were? Now, we forget this. They're in the book of Revelation. He's told us how all this thing's going to end. And it ends with him ruling and reigning. And then he just gives us these personal words. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me. He's not talking to unbelievers there. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. To render to every man according to what he's done. For this reason, we must pay closer attention so that we don't drift. Because if the word that was spoken of through angels was inalterable and brought penalty for every transgression and and, and disobedience, how will you and I escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This, this knowledge that we have that Jesus, he is seated at the right hand of God waiting for everything to be put under his feet. So in light of all that, how do we live intentionally? And I'm completely out of time, but that's okay because I'm going to give you three things you may have heard of them before. Number one, engage with God. Spend time with them every day. How do you engage with God? Get in the Word every day. Pray every day. Seek the Lord every day. It's, it's not hard. Connect with others. Why? Because it's iron sharpens iron. One of the best things that helps us keep from drift are brothers and sisters in Christ who are in our life who speak truth to us, who see the drift. You know, that's the thing. If you're ever out in a boat or you ever played out in the ocean, right, and you're, you're trying to ride the waves, I mean, there, there's a current there. And if you're not paying attention, next thing you're, you're like way down the beach from where you started, right, because there was a drift. You, you never saw it. But it's the people up there going, hey, kind of come back, right? Connect with others. And whether that's in a connect group or a Bible study or a group of friends or a cord group or men or whatever it is, connect with others. Lastly, live on mission. Get up every day understanding this world's not my home. So how do I today represent Jesus? How do I today tell others about him?